So uh, Ezra has been doing a lot of um, consultancy work with the BBC on social media around uh, a range of uh, their international services and Newsnight. She's previously worked with uh, Al Jazeera uh, and has a lot of experience in terms of uh, news organisations and, and driving social media. Um, I first saw her talk on this particular topic last year at the Google Newsgeist, a, a conference for news organisations organised by Google, uh, and it was one of the high points of the conference, so I'm delighted she's here, and I know she's uh, going to have updated it as well. So, Ezra, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you, Reuters Institute, for inviting me here, and thank you to all of you for taking the time out of your day to come and talk about, to come and listen to my talk about this. So, the starting point is... If Turkey's relationship with social media could be described as a Facebook relationship status, it would be that it's complicated. <laughs> and the reason why I say that it's complicated is because on one hand, social media in Turkey is very popular. The people who are on it are very, very active. If you go to any of the fancy Istanbul malls, you'll see check-in places on Foursquare, or if you go to baby showers or weddings, people will have those Instagram cardboard cutouts. So it is kind of like the cool, hip thing to do. And it's, all, it's a platform for sharing everything, and it's also a platform for consuming news, which Damien Radcliffe and I, we wrote about in last year's supplemental to the research report. But the other reason why it's in a little bit of conflict in this complicated situation is because it's seen as one of these avenues for speech for a lot of people that's been clamped down on in recent time. And you might have seen reports about this a lot. So what do we mean by that? Well, it's good to start at the start. So behind me is a trends map from 2013 from the Gezi Park protests. Now, some of you might be really familiar with this, but just to go over it for those who aren't so familiar with it. On May 31st in 2013, a few protesters were forcibly removed from a park in central Istanbul called Gezi Park. It's near Taksim Square, one of the central points in Istanbul. And they had been protesting for some time, because of the planned removal of trees and planned kind of reconstruction of that area into a more pedestrianized zone and um, commercial entity. Now that project had been signed off by both the opposition party and the ruling party in 2009, which had gone under the radar. Uh, and then because these protests were forcibly removed, people got wind of it, they started to come out onto the streets in support of them. The police then met that with force and also use of tear gas, more people heard about it, came out, and it just kind of turned into the snowball effect. The president at the time and then the deputy prime minister at the time, uh, so Abdullah Gulen Bulen Arinj, both did come out later in the few days following and said, yes, the police did use excessive force. They shouldn't have done that. But it was also one of these, not necessarily a coming-of-age moment, but it was something that was different for Turkey to see thousands of people coming out night after night after night and they used the removal of the trees in Gezi Park as a pretext for kind of anti-Erdogan sentiment and also anti-AKP, the Justice and Development Party sentiment as well. So on any given day, you'll see something in Twitter trending about Turkey. Usually it's about football or celebrities, but sometimes you'll see it make the headlines. So for instance, last year there was the attempted rape and then subsequent murder of high school student Özgecan Aslan. The year before that, there were 301 miners trapped in the Sewa mine who eventually died, and both of these events caused outrage in Turkey. But it all started in 2013 with Gezi Park. And the reason that it started in Gezi Park is because of an absence of mainstream media coverage. 
So again, we have to put this all into context because this is a media journalism forum. The reason why I think a few people try to equate it with the Arab Spring, you'll see it's mentioned as a Turkish Spring up there, is because it did come off the back of about a year and a half of protests that were happening in the Arab world, starting with Tunisia, also Egypt, then Yemen, and then things that were going on in Libya and also Jordan as well, where you'd have massive numbers of people come out into the streets night after night protesting against uh, democratic, anti, or sorry, anti-democratic authoritarian rule of leaders who had been in control for maybe a few decades. And so this was equated with Turkey, like how come all of a sudden all of these people are coming out and protesting? But it actually wasn't the same thing that was going on as well. This was just one square in Istanbul. And yes, there were protests that were replicated in other parts of Turkey. But when you see things like nationwide protests, I started to ask myself, hang on, that's, that's actually not, what, not, not what's really going on. When you see things like you know, massive police crackdown, nationwide protests, there wasn't very much quantification around this. Okay, who are we talking about? What are we talking about? The reason social media became important in this context is because mainstream Turkish media did not cover this in the same way that other broadcasters covered Arab Spring events. For example, you might remember the day that Mubarak stepped down, Al Jazeera had uninterrupted coverage of Tahrir Square. And so it was very easy to kind of equate these two things in the same bucket, but it wasn't exactly the same thing. Because mainstream Turkish media wasn't covering it, you might have also seen the very famous Tur Turkish example of CNN International did have a live broadcast of Taksim Square, but CNN Turk was showing a documentary on penguins. <laughs> you all remember this. So then this meme was also continued where in newspapers, when they would show the daily programming, they had pictures of the penguins of Madagascar and saying that this is actually penguin media. So not a whole lot of trust or credibility going on there. One organization that did put it into the context, however, was the BBC. So in the top left, you've got a map of Turkey. You can see where Istanbul is. I'm sure many of you have been there. And then down here, the large area is one section of Istanbul. This is on the European side. And then blown up here is Gezi Park. Now, on scale, that's about one kilometer squared. But that doesn't represent all of Turkey. That's one kilometer squared. And yes, it was unprecedented for thousands of people to come out. But does that represent the entire country? And I think this is the question that got going in my mind. So yes, it was unprecedented, but is this representative? And so this is the question that I started thinking about. Does social media really matter in Turkey? When you have a look at the protests that were happening in Egypt, only about 30% of the tweets that were being sent out in Egypt were from inside of Egypt. What happened in Turkey was that 90% of the tweets were coming from Istanbul. So that's something to bear in mind. The traction on social media didn't really take off until people who were tweeting from Turkey started to translate their tweets into English. That's when it started to catch the attention of mainstream media outside of Turkey and also people in the social sphere who started to pick, it, start to pick this up and magnify it as well. So again, let's do a little bit of maths. The population in Turkey is about 77 million. Of those, half of the population is online, about 35, 36 million. Most of those people are under the age of 35, about 70% of the internet population. Facebook is the number one social platform in Turkey. There are about 32 million accounts. So that doesn't mean 30 million people, because you know there's corporate accounts or entertainment, TV, etc. But there are 32 million registered accounts in Turkey, which makes Turkey the fourth biggest country for Facebook. 
And when we talk about Twitter, 8% of that internet population is online. So that roughly translates into about 6 million people. So again, I kept asking myself this question, does this 6 million people, and not all of them are tweeting, by the way, about pro-Gezi Park or anti-government, do they really represent Turkey? Well, this is the 2015 November election returns map. And 87% of all Twitter users in Turkey are coming from three cities. The first one is Ankara, which is over in the middle there, the capital city. Second is Istanbul, and the third one is Izmir. Yellow here on the map represents the ruling AK party. So you can see that they've got Ankara, they've got Istanbul, but they don't have Izmir, which is CHP, the main opposition party. So there, in the last November general elections, the AK party had, they won 49% of the vote. Voter turnout was high at about 85%. So approximately half of the country, we could say, does support President Erdogan and does support what the AK is doing. But at the same time, you have 50% of the country who do not support him. So again, that got me thinking. So are all of these tweets that we're seeing, do they really represent Turkey? There are a few news organizations. Whenever something happens about Turkey, I can tell you exactly what they're going to say. Massive anti-government protests in Istanbul. But does that really reflect what's going on in the country? And I think we've got a very international audience here. Think about your own countries. If there are protests happening in London, does that, does that reflect the entire UK? If there are things going on in Pakistan or in Kenya, do the protests happening in the capital cities, are they representative or reflective of the entire country? Maybe, maybe not. My answer was no, not really. They don't really reflect what's happening in the country. Now, whenever I go to Turkey, I try to kind of go off-piste to see what's going on, and I talk to a lot of people to see if this really matters. Uh, last year, or the year, sorry, since 2007, social platforms have been blocked seven times in Turkey. This is because there's a law in Turkey called Article 301, where it's a crime to insult Turkey or Turkishness including the founder of modern Turkey, which is Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. And one of the cases was there was a former leader of the opposition, Deniz Baikal, who was caught in a compromising situation in a hotel room with a woman who was not his spouse. And even in that instance, Turkey tried to have this video taken down from YouTube and blocked access to YouTube. So it wasn't even in the government's interest at that time. But since then, these have hit international media. And I think the reason why it's hit international media is because Turkey does style itself as a Western democracy. But of course, it's not a Western democracy. And I say that because it's not the same level of economic development. And when you have a look at the practice of various institutions and the exercises of various freedoms, it's not at the same level of what we see in this country or other European or Western countries for that matter. When you have a look at what the opinion of the Arab world is, you will see that President Erdogan is really revered in some parts of the Arab world. And if we dissect that a little bit, it's because a lot of the countries in the Arab world do have these kind of institutionalized leaders who've been around for a long time and who kind of aspire to the democratic freedoms that you have in Turkey. So when I was coming here this morning, I was having a chat with a, a Persian cab driver, and he was saying, you know, I go to Istanbul quite a lot for my holidays, and 200 meters down the road, I can spot an Iranian woman because she's the one who's not wearing her hijab, and she's the one who has kind of style about her when she's walking down the street. So I, so, and I know this is true of people who come from Saudi Arabia, from Iran, they do see Turkey as a place that's more free for them. But for Turks, they don't see themselves necessarily as free as some of their Western counterparts. And this also has something to do with trust. 
So since I first did this presentation, as Richard mentioned, for News Guys, there have been a lot of things that have changed in Turkey. The first one is there have been a lot more protests around various issues. There's been a lot of pressure on freedoms. Uh, and I'm going to get into that a little bit more. Maybe we can talk about it in the conversation. And I say that it matters in two areas. The first area where this matters is freedom of speech. In 2014, a controversial internet law was enacted that makes the closing of not just social platforms, but entire networks and pages possible. And that's happened a couple of times. And also in the second half of 2014, the Turkish government issued the most number of requests for removal of content for Twitter than anybody else. That's one thing. Um, the second thing is there have been more uh, limitations, I think, on freedom of speech by means of protest and by means of gathering. And so if you're taking away this space of personal expression online and also in the streets, where is that outlet going to be? The second area where this matters is for freedom of the press. And so if some of you have been following what's been happening in the Turkish media spectrum, you will have known that there have been a few raids on government entities and also a few blocks on media. So last year there was a prosecutor who was prosecuting the case of a boy who was hit in the head by a tear gas canister during the Gezi protests. And uh, there were these, I think, there was a bit of pressure on his office. Two people had taken him hostage. They were all killed. The coverage of that incident was clamped down on by various Turkish government entities. And there was also temporary blocks put on Twitter and on YouTube until those pieces of content were removed. We saw a recent version of this happen in the very unfortunate Istanbul bombing last week, where there was a statement issued by the Turkish Broadcasting Authority to also not cover it. But despite that, we did see a couple of mainstream carriers like CNN to, I don't know if it was in defiance or if they literally didn't get the memo, they did continue this broadcasting. The other thing that has happened, as you might know if we get into the intricacies of Turkish politics a little bit, is that um, Fethullah Gulen, who is a cleric and self-imposed exile in Pennsylvania, was a former ally of President Erdogan and also the ruling party, have now split ways. Fethullah Gulen also kind of owns this media empire and various other entities as well. All of those media properties have been um, raided or have had some kind of government interference in that time. There's even another newspaper called Hurriyet, which a few months ago published an article about an interview that Erdogan did with a different TV station, where there was a quote sent from Erdogan apparently saying, if you had given us the 400 seats, which is enough for a constitutional change, uh, this conflict wouldn't have happened. This conflict of course, is referring to what's happening in the southeast of Turkey, where many um, Turkish policemen are dying and many um, Turkish military personnel are dying as well. So it's very, very contentious. And you know, you begin to unpack these things, and you see things are not always what they seem. When it comes to media, you do see a few little media entities popping up and trying to do this, but they're on, all under tremendous <coughs> pressure. Uh, a lot of my friends who work in journalism in Turkey, they do complain about having to self-censor. If you have a look at the quality of media in Turkey, um, if you're watching, I don't know, for the Turkish people amongst us, if you're watching the coverage of the elections, it's basically the same thing. It's pontificating heads, all male panels, usually seven, seven men on a panel, talking about the same thing. So you do not have this development or diversity in media. <coughs> So what does end up happening is social media becomes the sphere of expression that doesn't really exist. 
And I think where you find some of the tension is coming from are a lot of these young, savvy, urbanite Turks who are using social media are frustrated because they do have these expectations of the liberty and the freedom in the West, but they don't see this being naturalized in the platforms that they have. But again, we have to remember that it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. I was mentioning that I do kind of go into the back streets and I do talk to everybody about what's going on. Simply said, Twitter is a non-factor for a lot of people. YouTube is a non-factor for a lot of people. A lot of people from Erdogan electorate are from the Anatolian heartland of Turkey, where this just doesn't matter for them. And so all they believe is what the government is telling them to believe. So when you have statements from the president saying Twitter will close them all, they believe, oh yes, it must be a menace to the society because our leader who we've elected is saying it as so. And the media's failure in this regard is not taking these comments apart and not really saying, okay, let's have a healthy debate about this. That healthy debate really isn't existing in Turkey. And so while my talk was on social media in Turkey, I think maybe there are two things that I would encourage you to take away from this. And I don't think it's just for the Turkish example. When you do see things lighting up on social media with regard to Turkey, I think the first question that I myself ask, my, I ask myself is, is, is this true? Is this just one area? Does it represent the whole country? Because inevitably it doesn't. But also the second thing is, if something is bubbling up on social media, is it actually a symptom or is it some kind of insight into something wider that's going on that needs to be paid attention to? So that's my formal part of my comments and <laughs> we can open up to questions then. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.